Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When the term OSINT was first invented, what it really meant was just translating foreign newspapers. And that's changed, of course, enormously since then. So the sort of skills that you need to turn that raw data into intelligence is now something that's increasingly specialist. There's so much more volume of data, you know, the velocity and and the hyperconnectivity of it. And that as human beings, we are largely overwhelmed with the kind of information capacity we already have. So decision makers are in absolutely the same boat. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Olivia Shen, Director at the National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Mia Hammond-Airy, the Director of the Emerging Technology Program at the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney. Mia's work explores the intersections of emerging technologies and security. She has published extensively on technology, intelligence, national security, and information warfare, and her forthcoming book is called Big Data, Emerging Technologies and Intelligence, National Security Disrupted. Welcome, Mia. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. And today we're also joined by Ben Scott, a senior advisor at the National Security College. Ben has over 25 years of experience in diplomacy, intelligence and think tanks, including stints at the Lowy Institute and the Office of National Intelligence. Welcome, Ben. Thanks very much for having us. Really looking forward to this chat. So today we've brought Mia and Ben together to talk about big data, open source intelligence, and how the national intelligence community in Australia and around the world has to evolve. We're trying to keep pace with a increasingly complex and pretty relentless information environment. This is a topic that's really front of mind for many governments and for national security agencies and national security professionals. And it's certainly going to be a focus of the independent review of the Australia's intelligence community that's currently underway. So I wanted to ask with a couple of framing questions for both Mia and for Ben, how would you define open source intelligence? How has it changed the game for the intelligence community? Ben, I might start with you if that's all right. Great. Okay. Excellent question. Um, Well, most simply, open source intelligence is just that intelligence which is derived from publicly available or commercially available information. Uh, but I think it's important to emphasize the difference between open source intelligence or OSINT and publicly available information because they often use the synonyms, which I think is a mistake. Uh, for example, there was a piece in a, a really good feature in The Economist about o- OSINT, I think early last year, which, uh, which although it was a really good piece, it, it used the terms interchangeably, which is kind of missing the point. And the point is that Creating OSINT really requires adding value to the raw data, so turning it into something that is useful for policymakers, useful for decision makers. That's what makes it intelligence, really. Um, 
but back in the day, the, the way that was done, so when, when the term OSINT was first invented, uh, what it really meant was just translating foreign newspapers, basically. Um, and that's changed, of course, enormously since then. So the sort of skills that you need to apply to turn that raw data, to turn that in huge and increasing volume of raw data in, into intelligence is now something that's in, increasingly specialist, um, which which I think brings me to the question of how to really change the game for the intelligence community. Um, and then I think we need to pull back and look at it in more kind of big picture. So the rise of OSINT is just one of the ways but perhaps the most obvious way that the digital inf information revolution writ large is really transforming the business of intelligence. So in terms of OSINT, you know, in, in, during the Cold War, it was often said that 80% of the information, the national security information that Western governments needed was secret um, and 20% was open source. Um, that balance has at the very least reversed and probably even more. But the problem is that Western intelligence organizations are still very much geared towards secret intelligence. Uh, now, just to be clear, secret intelligence is still vital. I mean, Australia still needs to know the secret intentions and capabilities of its competitors and adversaries. But intelligence organizations also need to do much more to, to uh, shift to accommodate this change. They need to do more to, to capitalize on the particular advantages of OSINT, this whole new new realm that's opening up. And part of the reason they need to do that is so they can produce much better secret intelligence. So just to sum up, I think both really have a role. So OSINT has a particular role. It provides information that's often contextual, foundational. It supports secret intelligence often by narrowing the question. Uh, you can use it to corroborate the insights from secret intelligence. You can use it to focus secret intelligence much more to make sure that those classified resources are really focused on the hard targets, on the really difficult intelligence problems. And secret intelligence has a role of its own, but also can be used to improve OSINT. It can be used to direct, to validate, to contradict, and to refine OSINT. So the real challenge, I think, for intelligence organizations faced with this whole new information environment is not just adapting to OSINT, but really finding the balance and really optimizing that interaction between OSINT and secret intelligence. Mia, how about you? How would you define OSINT and those challenges that Ben's outlined? So the academic in me is going to leap in with a couple of proper definitions here. Um, I totally agree with most of what Ben said, and that is that um, you know most of the de definitions of OSINT involve the term publicly available information, um, but there is less consensus uh, on whether or not it includes analysis of that information uh, to render it intelligence that then provides, you know, some use in the national security context. And that's where I'd bring in those definitions of intelligence. Um, in my book, I talk about uh, a combination of definitions, starting with that, you know, the original intelligence is knowledge that is vital for national security, Kent, of course, um, and then Lowenthal's, it is information that has been collected, processed and narrowed to meet the needs of policy and decision makers in relation to defence, foreign policy and national state affairs. And I'd combine that then with Rollington's definition that it is information that is gathered and analysed, sometimes secretly, and then used to understand a particular situation and act with advantage in it. When you start to think about, you know, what the... Uh, intelligence leaders and practitioners like Andrew Shearer, who Ben mentioned in his paper, and Sue Gordon, who I've had on my podcast, they talk about it much more in a practical, uh, you know, kind of 
focus on enabling decision makers to act with advantage. And the reason that I bring back to those foundational definitions of intelligence to talk about OSINT is that it's a really well-recognized term within intelligence, um, but actually outside the intelligence community, it's not always that helpful because it's a little bit uh, self-focused. And it's a term that, like Ben said, is really useful when you're talking about OSINT being a small part of the overall intelligence, uh, you know, data or collection. But when you're talking about it being, you know, you just gave that stat about 80%, you know, when you talk about that kind of statistic, um, open source intelligence implies that the intelligence community is capable and empowered of turning publicly available data uh, and information into intelligence in a comprehensive and effective way. And it's really hard to see how that could happen effectively en masse with publicly available information. Um, so it's absolutely been a huge game changer. But I think um, OSINT is one part of a huge shift in the operating environment for intelligence communities and agencies. And I would um, draw attention to a paper published last year by Lucy Mason at CTAS called Emerging Shadows, which set out three really clear needs for uh, kind of the big change, if you like, in OSIN, and that is the changing nature of data, which I talk a lot about in the context of emerging technology, uh, the focus about how government priorities have evolved and what constitutes national security significantly broadening out, and then something which I think is really critical for OSINT uh, is the way trust in evidence and authority has really shifted. And I'm not sure whether this is OSINT specific, but it's definitely a, a larger problem which has converged around who creates and uses data and information, who has access to it, who owns it, and the changes in knowledge and power that we see as a result of these social information shifts so I think open source intelligence is one part of that overall change um, in, in the operating environment of intelligence communities and how they try to provide that advice to inform and influence decision makers. That's an incredibly broad spectrum of challenges and changes in the operating environment, right? And and I absolutely um, agree with both of you that, you know, it, the what we're seeing, the changes in OSINT is in part a reflection of broader changes in society in terms of individuals' ability to manage the wealth and the diversity of information. There is a huge mental load that is now on everyday people, much less intelligence officers and analysts and politicians and policymakers trying to wrap your hand, your, your arms around that and grapple with that heft of information and applying skills to turn raw data into useful, applicable intelligence. That's a really interesting skill. And it's interesting that we now are awash with data, but we're not necessarily awash with those skills that turn data into intelligence. So I know that, Mia, you recently conducted research with members of the Australian intelligence community on what good intelligence looks like. Um, can you take us through some of those findings and what those key characteristics are, especially in this more complex, faster information environment? Yeah, sure. So that um, the research you're talking about is published in a journal article. Um, yeah, I'll send the link in the show notes. The It's a part of a bigger body of research, which ended up being um, my book, which is now out. Um, and, and I cover parts of it in the book. But in the research paper, what came out was that there were a number of characteristics of good intelligence. Um, the research overall, I should clarify, was it included interviews in all of the national intelligence community agencies, mostly with heads of agencies or a senior leader, and then often a number of um, 
smaller interviews, individual interviews with uh, practitioners, uh, senior decision makers, operational decision makers, and a range of technologists. So there were nearly 50 interviews. And the conclusion in terms of the characteristic of good intelligence is that it, it must be timely or able to be considered within the decision-making cycle. Um, so obviously we can see that there's going to be a shift in, in you know, the way that emerging technologies affect that, uh, that it must be purposeful, uh, that is the intent with which it is created. That's also really clearly significant for our legislative uh, regime, um, particularly around collection uh, and use of certain types of intelligence. The third is that it must be actionable. Uh, there needs to be an ability to do something with it. And, and a question set, a question um, one of the participants asked me was that, what can you do with the intelligence? If there's no actionable intelligence, you've really got to ask yourself, why are you producing it? It must be accurate. That is exacting, correct, specific and precise. Uh, and one of the participants outlined that, you know, it really is the responsibility of leaders in intelligence agencies to ensure that what is known and what is, you know, unknown or speculatively is really clearly communicated. Uh, it must be value added. That is the value it adds to the decision making process. And finally, it must be unbiased, impartial, independent and apolitical. So they're kind of the overarching, uh, you know, characteristics of good intelligence. And in the paper, I do go into more detail about how they've changed in the current tech environment. So on aggregate, taking those six characteristics of good intelligence, do, do you think the era of big data makes it harder or easier to deliver? <laughs> I don't think many Both, potentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. I think you really, you, you mentioned, you know, at the end of our first kind of chat there about how things are becoming, there's so much more volume of data, you know, the velocity and, and the hyperconnectivity of it. And that as human beings, we are largely overwhelmed with the, the kind of information capacity we already have. So decision makers are in absolutely the same boat. So I don't think that those, um, you know, th that those characteristics have made it more difficult or less difficult. I think what's happened is that, in fact, those characteristics have remained extant. Many of those would have been the same characteristics that Kent, if he had written that paper, would have said, yeah, I mean, it's one of the reasons he is kind of the founding father of American intelligence. Um, and, you know, since then, many, many others have talked about why they're important. I think what's changed in as a result of big data and, and you know, the underlying um, emerging technologies that we're seeing come around, uh, it's actually about reaching decision makers. It's about understanding them. It's about providing intelligence that has a purpose, that meets the information gap or the knowledge gap that they have, um, that you actually have access to that decision maker um, and that you can have an impact and influence their decision making in the cycle that is needed. Um, and obviously, when I talk about influence here, I'm talking about providing them with critical pieces of intelligence to make a decision, not as in persuade them on a specific course of action. Interestingly, all six characteristics were consistent across 
the NIC agencies. So there's often discussion that, you know, security intelligence or foreign intelligence or policing, you know, criminal intelligence have a different set of characteristics. But actually, this research shows they are consistent across all the agencies. It's how they're applied and in what context. And I think, to be honest, that's how emerging tech is shifting these characteristics. It's about, you know, reaching the the decision maker at the right time in their decision making cycle. That's probably been the same the whole way along. It's just becoming a little different. Ben, would you agree with that overall? Yes. uh, There's one thing that really struck me, one one thought that Mia put forward, um, I guess it's in answer to the question. So you asked whether this this new digital environment makes it easier or harder to to, to deliver good intelligence, as Mia terms it. Um, I would come at that question by saying, starting point is I think it makes it harder. Um, it's harder to to make use of and to extract the best of information and to make sense and to explain and clarify all that stuff in this information environment. But the way I think we need to approach that is to say, well, this is the information environment we, we, we have. There's nothing we can do about that. How do we allocate our finite intelligence resources against that problem? And if you are starting from scratch, you wouldn't build uh, institutions which are focusing 98% of their resources on secret intelligence. You would have a different approach altogether. That's part of the answer. But I think the second part of the answer, uh, and this gets a bit more complicated, but I think there's a way of harnessing this new information dynamic to encourage intelligence agencies to, to, to produce more of that good intelligence, as Mia puts it, puts it, or as I put in my paper, just useful, in, useful national security information, which I think is a good kind of rough working definition of what good intelligence is. Um, Can I jump in because I I, I, I love what you're saying. What I want to say then is because your question about is this institutionally, are we structured well institutionally as as an organisation, as a community? And I think what it does for me is ask the question, what is the role of an intelligence community? So offering useful national security information in a world of overwhelming information is useful high enough bar or should we be, you know, prioritising really specific areas of insight uh, so that we do establish a community which is set up as best as it possibly can be because the role of information in society has changed. I mean, you started with that profound statistic about the role of intelligence in the Cold War and that was an era, you know, when I spoke with Sue Gordon, she, you know, she talks about foraging for information versus, you know, the kind of firewall of information. And I I think it's just such a profound shift in such a short time from information being valuable and important to information being overloaded and irrelevant. And I wonder how we shift that. You know, what are your thoughts about shifting the concept of what is the role of our intelligence community? So absolutely, yeah, I think we need to shift that concept. And one way we do that is we is by taking a definition, whether we call it useful intelligence or whether we focus on which I think are some of the subpoints of utility that you've drawn out, out of, is we we focus more on, uh, on on usable intelligence. So I think one of the problems with the existing structures is that we don't have that that, that bias towards useful intelligence. And I think we saw this the best clear recent example of this is the Ukraine conflict. Uh, where the sort of rapid uh, uh, declassification and dissemination of 
previously highly classified intelligence via the US and UK was hailed as this great achievement uh, widely, often by the media, which are always very keen on declassification of intelligence. But uh, I think I think that's all true, but it was also kind of missing the point. Like, we shouldn't have been in that situation in the first place. We shouldn't have been in the situation where this kind of closely guarded information, which actually could have been used much more usefully, had to go through this quite rough process to begin with. And we see this from the way it's described, the White House saying, hey, guys, could we actually use this more? Go back to the drawing board. Oh, yeah, actually, you could use this more. Actually, we probably overclassified this. You can put this out in this form. You can disseminate it more widely. We need to be doing that stuff from the get-go. Uh, the problem is the, the kind of incentive structures that you have in a, in a predominantly secret intelligence organization or in infrastructure or a NIC, whatever you want to call it, don't encourage that behavior. Uh, and so the way you shift the balance, I think, is to shift this, uh, the focus to put more emphasis on, on, on the OSINT endeavor to show what OSINT can do to, in, to have some kind of more, uh, productive competition really between these two disciplines. Uh, I'll stop there because it gets a bit more complex. We'll be right back. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. In a volatile world, Australia's strategic problem demands difficult decisions. Licensed by an inclusive conversation. The ANU National Security College is proud to present Securing Our Future, a conference like no other, informing a distinctly Australian, people-centred vision of national security. Bringing together diverse Australian and international voices, we are bridging disciplines, professions and viewpoints. Join us in Canberra on the 9th and 10th of April this year to engage with thought leaders and decision makers from government, academia and industry. For more details and to secure your ticket, visit the link in the show notes. The ANU National Security College, engaging minds for a secure Australia. Now, Ben, I know that in your recent occasional paper that you wrote for the National Security College, you definitely talked a lot about this culture of secrecy that still pervades the intelligence community, leads to things being overclassified. In the Ukraine example, it's actually heralded as uh, a success story, right, of uh, declassifying things to try to manage the information warfare that has been a big part of this war. And you flipped it on its head and said, well, actually, yes, it was a good example, but it also points to an underlying problem that we even had to go through this rigmarole to declassify things when we already knew that information warfare and countering disinformation was going to be so critical to what was happening in the Ukraine. So, I, I guess in, in the vein of sort of combating that culture of secrecy, you've argued that Australia actually needs to establish a dedicated open source intelligence agency. Can you take us through that recommendation why you see that need there? Sure, I will. First, I wanted to say another point about secrecy because I think I'm worried that it sounds like I'm dunking on secrecy too much. <laughs> I mean, secrecy is obviously fundamental to secret intelligence. You do not have 
secret intelligence without secrecy. You need secrecy. It's important. The problem is when I talk about culture of secrecy, what I really mean is culture of excessive secrecy, which, as you said, manifests in overclassification, undersharing. I mean, and if you look at all the attempts at intelligence reform over the years, they've really been all, all trying to deal with this same problem in different forms, different manifestations of this problem, which I call the secrecy problem, and which no one is really to blame for because it's just it's it, it's a natural and logical response to the way the institutions and structures are set up. Um, so coming to the, the argument for uh, an independent or, or a, a separate dedicated OSINT agency, and the main argument that I would make for that is it's needed so that we can rebalance the NIC. Um, and I just say ordinarily, like arguing to set up a new government body is not something that I would do. I'd normally be quite allergic to that as a recommendation. And when I first started working on this, it sounded like a really terrible idea to me. So I kind of argued myself around. Um, so I think we need, but it's, it's a necessary step so that we can start to make this rebalance, to make this shift, um, precisely because, you know, the existing structure, as I've said, is still geared very much towards secret intelligence. But the second reason for doing it is that I think we can now really say that OSINT is a distinct discipline or really it's more accurately described as a distinct set of disciplines, which are OSINT. Um, it's, it has, and it has very particular advantages. It has some disadvantages, but when compared to secret intelligence, you know, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's more easily disseminated. And I think another overlooked point, another overlooked advantage is that it can be produced by many more people because you don't have the same security clearance requirements. You can get a much larger group of people working together. You can get a more diverse group. You can build on crowdsourcing, all that stuff. Um, and it's very difficult to capitalize on those particular advantages inside a classified environment. So we have, we have dedicated organizations for human intelligence, for signals intelligence, geospatial, you name it. And the reason for that is we think that those are particular specializations which justify their own organization. They don't all need to be centralized. That argument is even stronger when we apply it to OSINT. So the argue, that's the second argument. The third one, which I'll just touch on briefly, and it gets back to my earlier point, is I think if we want to try and harness this kind of disruptive power of OSINT, uh, harness it in a productive way, I think that's the third argument for having a, a dedicated OSINT organisation. So you can start to build some of that productive competition, I think, with secret intelligence, which you hope leads to kind of both doing their jobs much better in the end. So there is risk here from what you're saying, though, that instead of harnessing disruptive competition or healthy competition, you end up with a poorly integrated system where sort of open source intelligence is still sat quite siloed away from classified intelligence. And there's sort of these two camps, you know, warring with one another or fighting for influence or fighting for resources, right? You know, we are in a resource-constrained environment. So when you talk about rebalancing the NIC, how do you make sure that balance doesn't tip too far away the other direction and that still allows that integration of nationally security, national security information? Yeah, great question. So I, I think without a doubt the strongest argument against having a dedicated OSINT organisation is that it's completely, it, it completely contradicts the trend towards integration. And so that has been the trend in intelligence reform for a long time. I think it's a good idea. I think we need to have 
more intelligence integration. We need those specialized organizations, but we need to find a way to bring them together to make them, to make, as, as the strange review said, a community that's more than the sum of its parts. Um, that was the logic behind the creation of the NIC, the creation of the Office of National Intelligence. I think that logic still applies. Uh, so I think, as you say, integration is the main challenge. Uh, the question is, where do, you, where do you do that integration? Do you do it inside uh, a, a single classified organization or a classified set of organizations? Or do you try and do it at, at one remove, a remove that allows you to capitalize on on the particular advantages of OSINT. So I argue for that, doing it that one remove, uh, but the job of integration really still needs to be led by ONI. Um, for ONI to do that, I think ONI needs to be empowered much more than it currently is. Uh, that's probably a separate conversation. But yeah, I, I still think that that function rests with ONI and that's the way that you try to make sure that that competition is productive, as I said, and also prevent an overbalance happening, uh, which you averted to in your question. Mia, do you have any reflections or comments on that integration? I, I completely agree with Ben that integration is one of the key challenges to any OSINT um, function, whether it's within an agency, within an organisation, within a community, um, working effectively. And uh in Feb last year, I published a paper called Secrecy, Sovereignty and Sharing, where I talked about, you know, the role of um, OSINT not rendering secret intelligence less valuable and saying that, uh, you know, in, in some ways similar to what Ben said, but that the debate shouldn't be framed as mutually exclusive. You know, it is the benefits for the intelligence community as a whole come from combining covert, covert intelligence and open source intelligence that, the challenge here is the way that I see it is that in the current environment, there are two really significant challenges for the intelligence community in providing advice to national security decision makers. And the third, the first is about the way that national security threat assessments are made and the way that threat assessment models currently work with a predisposition towards kinetic or economic harm over things like mis- and disinformation and how we might try to understand those. And secondly, where national security decisions are being made, um, you know, the significant increase in the role of technology companies and, uh, you know, connectivity providers in society means that their relative decision making has changed. They are now significant security decision makers. Um, and this makes the national security decision making space much more complex. So, you know, I'd love to kind of, I guess, flesh those out a little bit more and think about, you know, how might, um, how might we integrate it, you know, if, if you went ahead with establishing an, a, an independent OSINT agency, like how would you integrate that to improve threat assessment models and improve threat assessment decision making? Um, you know, and how would you draw in an additional player? I mean, if it works, obviously it would be excellent. Um, I think the real challenge there is we're already struggling with, um, you know, those models and decision makers. But I, I'd love to have a chat about it, Ben. Um, I think it's yeah. a really exciting idea. Yeah, so I, I'd love to as well. I mean, maybe we can do it a bit now. Um, you, you made two great points there. The second one I think I can address, which is uh, I would imagine that an OSINT agency is much better able to deal directly with 
the private sector, with, you know, cutting edge technology companies, you know, with that whole open source world, than classified intelligence organization. And that's the way that you, you, you build in, you, you, you harness all that knowledge that's out there, whether it's in the commercial sector or whatever it might be. But I'm intrigued by the earlier point you made, which I think you said that in threat assessments, there's a bias towards economic and uh, kinetic harm. I just, want, I, I just wanted you to elaborate on that a bit more because uh, I didn't quite understand it. Yeah, sure. So um, it's a section in my book, but basically one of the things that came out really strongly in the research was that it's very hard for intelligence organisations to gain traction with decision makers about complex, diffuse vulnerabilities and threats. Right. The way that what I describe in my book, but, you know, is described in various ways. I call it the big data landscape of um, data abundance, digital connectivity and ubiquitous technology. But, you know, you can call it a digital environment or the information age. How this has shifted um, the way that, I guess, the levers that occur in, in making that landscape, sorry, has made the environment much more complex and the, the vulnerabilities much more diffuse. I mean, you can see it in something like cybersecurity. Right. Another way that I often explain it is that um, I wrote a piece for foreign policy about Elon Musk and, um, you know, turning Twitter, now X, into you know, a propaganda platform. What what changed there was actually a really minor change in one platform. I mean, relative to world changes, Elon Musk's changes to state labelling on a platform, a social media platform, wouldn't necessarily create an expectation of a large shift in disinformation trends, and yet it did result in that. One of the things that decision makers talked to me about in my research was that it's very difficult to gain significant national security traction around diffuse vulnerabilities over, you know, direct economic or um, kinetic threats. And, and that's obvious, you know, in one sense, of course, uh, an immediate and present threat would take precedence. But at the same time, the world we currently live in is quite diffuse. It is quite complex. There are a lot of uncertainties and ambiguities you know, when you think about things like information warfare or hybrid grey zone activity occurring in our region, these are issues we need to confront. And so being able to respond proportionately, in one of the um, interviews I did, they gave the example of maiming or shutting down a stock exchange. And, and you know, if you, if you did that via kinetic means versus via a cyber attack, we would have a really different response. And right. it was starting to kind of consider how might we see or raise the relativity of infrastructure responses or, you know, data leaks, data hacks to being as significant. So, you know, the current, um, the current uh, cyber um uh, yeah, but also the current activity that's occurring with the cyber criminal from Russia and Russia. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the use of cyber sanctions for the first time to call Thank out you, the yeah. person responsible <laughs> for the Medicare yes. hack. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to brain on that one. Thank you. Um, you, know, you can see how we are starting to consider this, but I think it's a much bigger issue that OSINT will actually kind of rise up and we'll have more yeah. of these problems to deal with. 
But I think I think you've also touched on a really interesting point, Mia, that touches on the point Ben made earlier about intelligence bridging the knowledge gap of the people receiving the intel. So in terms of the decision makers, if our decision makers are primed to really focus on those kinetic on economic threats and the more diffuse threats that are under that level, it means that intel officers have to do a lot more work actually to convince them that this is a compelling threat to actually care about. So that gap is potentially actually widening as we have more diffusion in the sources of information and intelligence. Um, But I digress. I think I've pulled you away from the the point about needing to restructure and and having to using OSINT uh, more effectively. Um, I I did also have a twig when you were talking, Mia, about there is a, a rub point here, though, with governments at the same, on the one hand, trying to rein in technology companies through regulation and other means, and on the other hand, trying to leverage the enormous amounts of tech and talent that they have at their disposal and to some degree almost monopolize as significant national security decision makers. Like, how do you balance those competing interests there? On the one hand, let's say, saying to someone like OpenAI, hey, we actually really want to use your large language models to make the most of our OSINT. And on the other hand, saying, but we also want to make sure that you're you're regulated and deploy these technologies responsibly and ethically. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really hard, a hard question with an even harder answer. Um, the power of big tech players is clear. I wrote in my tech wrap-up of 2023 that I think we'll start to see much more significance placed on both regulation but also broader awareness in 2024 of the role of technology, um, those key technology players in geopolitical competition, in power. You know, even in my research, some of the national security leaders called them more powerful than nation states. So this is not a new concept. Um, I do think Australia has made significant steps towards both complying and engaging multilaterally, um, you know, with things like the Bletchley Park summits, working with the US on guardrails for AI and military. I mean, there's a lot of work that's happening there, but equally with a really strong focus on individual safety. Um, And I think that is a critical nexus point because at the end of the day, you cannot solve many of these tech challenges without thinking at that three layers. You know, you've got the individual, you've got the nation state and you've got the international. Um, And you're right, it is a really difficult balancing act, but essentially, you know, in a democracy, a government needs to be able to regulate whatever entity that is. And so they need to also take that power and regulate if people are asking for that. I mean, that is the point of a democracy. I would just quickly mention that last week, uh, OpenAI did quietly change their uh, terms of use so that ChatGPT can in fact be used uh, for national security military purposes. Uh, and there's there's been quite a lot of speculative reporting that the first cab off the rank is to use ChatGPT on open source Intel and to be able to glean insight from it, um, to be able to analyze it at scale and at speed that we haven't been able to do before. Is that the kind of thing you envision would happen with an open source, an independent separate open source intelligence agency, Ben? Hopefully it doesn't hallucinate quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes and no. Uh, well, that's why and, you need the actual, yeah. you know, classified intelligence and uh, the intel analysts to make sure there aren't any hallucinations in the final report. 
if, if they can, if they can, you kind of assume they would have that ability. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, to deal with not just the challenges of OSINT, but, you know, huge information challenges that go well beyond intelligence, uh, this whole problem of AI needs to be grappled with. Um, and, you know, you often hear talk, it's pretty vague still, I think, but I think it's useful about building sovereign AI capabilities. Uh, I think that still has to be the goal, right? Uh, whether Whatever that means, I mean, that could mean at minimum, presumably, uh, you know, it's not something, you know, that the state is building from ground up, but something where we at least have the algorithm as transparent as possible. And that's always going to be the danger with using these commercial applications for intelligence or other purposes or government using is you don't know exactly how the sausage is being made and bit by bit you're skewed. You know, and weirdly that's probably already happening in a lot of not just intelligence but other government departments, you know, People think that Google is a transparent window onto the world, right? They don't realize uh, the way that they're interacting with the world through their Google searches to start off with, but also the way that what they see is always skewed. Um, so, yeah, it's something that an independent open source intelligence agency, I, I keep saying independent, I don't mean independent, I mean dedicated or autonomous or something. Um, yeah, it, it, has to, it has to be part of that, that big AI challenge. Um, but just to zoom back a little bit further on that as well, I mean, a topic that's come up a few times in this conversation has been what is the role of intelligence organisations in information competition or information warfare and so on. This is another one I think we need to really grapple with quite carefully because, and one where I think we actually need to fall back on really classical definitions of intelligence and say that there's a big difference between finding out information at which you inform decision makers with, which is as true and accurate as possible, and actually engaging in and shaping the information environment. Um, and, you know, that's something that happened in Ukraine. That's the way that intelligence was used. But it's something that needs to be done quite quite carefully because, you know, it's, it's only 20 years before that that this, the same activity was attempted before the, the Iraq war and it was such a disaster and actually destroyed the reputation of intelligence the US intelligence community, but Australian to some extent as well, for quite a while. So a great deal of care is needed. But there is a role for a dedicated OSINT organisation in this, I think, which is that simply that some of its products should be public. Um, it, it should be charged with producing intelligence, not just for government, but sometimes this is for the public. Um, and there'll always be that suspicion that this thing that's coming from government is just propaganda. Um, and the only way to really deal with that is to build a reputation over time. So to have have this, this, this organization which has some autonomy, which is clearly not producing things just to serve uh, the media cycle or just to serve information warfare or propaganda needs, but which is clear, factual and informative and after a while will start to be depended on. I mean, you see something like BBC Verify is starting to do that, I think, starting to build that reputation in the UK. but. There's no reason why an Australian organisation couldn't do something similar. It doesn't have to be the ABC. So do you then, would you then see a stronger relationship between, you know, an open source um, organisation and traditional news outlets? I mean, what you're describing there is actually much more of a two-way information exchange. Yeah, I mean, I, I would in the sense that they would be pushing out information that media organisations could use, but I think it would be really important to 
not to be drawn into the media cycle. So, so it should be producing, you know, factual reports on things which have happened in the world about which there is some confusion or about which there is perhaps obviously a misinformation, a lot of misinformation or a disinformation campaign underway. And the purpose is to clarify, but the purpose is not to produce news. Um, it, we shouldn't, it shouldn't be trying to spend its resources on that. That's, that's the job of news organisations in the end. I think ultimately there would also need to be a little bit of credible distance from government, right? Right. So it's been interesting to see sort of the incredible community of fact-checkers that has emerged in a place like Taiwan where dis and misinformation definitely can sway elections in a big way Um, and to see the collaboration between media outlets but also independent citizens who are volunteers doing fact-checking and then also academic institutions and research think tanks collaborate to really do very precise, very timely, purposeful fact-checking in the lead-up to the January 13 recent elections. It's been quite remarkable and I think it's something that um, other countries who are also vulnerable to those kind of risks should really have a look at. Absolutely. Now, uh, I'm, I'm conscious that we are three data nerds, Intel nerds, who can probably talk at length about any number of these uh, little rabbit holes topics that we're going down. But if I could wrap up with a little bit of a hypothetical question, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about, uh, we've talked quite a lot about the challenges and, and how the national intelligence community needs to evolve and adapt. I want us to maybe time travel to the future a little bit. Let's say it's 2030. It's the day of the life of an Intel officer. What do you think he or she is doing differently in 2030 compared to what they're doing today? Ben, can I start with you? Sure. Uh, Okay. Uh, I'm going to be a bit optimistic. Uh, 2030 is probably a bit early because 2030 is not that far away. 2030, they're probably not going to be doing anything much different from how they're doing today. But I would like to think that it would be quite different in a slightly longer term time frame, longer time frame. and I'll take it in a, in a maybe a slightly counterintuitive direction. So I've spoken a lot about the differences between secret intelligence and OSINC, which I think are really important and quite stark. But I actually think that over time they're going to come to mean less and less. Um, and I'll just build on something Mia said in her in her first answer, which is that there's actually kind of a problem with the term OSINT. It's actually sort of an odd anachronism. I think I don't think you use the term navel gazing, but that's what I heard. Self-referential. Self-referential, right, exactly. You have this kind of odd term which the intelligence community, the secret intelligence community came up with to call all that other stuff like in the in the late 40s, um, but which is now being used like incredibly widely, seen in the media all the time, to refer to this huge volume of mostly digital information. And it strikes me it's a little bit like the, like calling a car a, a horseless carriage. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of just very sort of weird, out of date, metaphorical speaking. So I think it's going to become less and less important. And I think we're actually already in a world where more of the information the government needs, national security information, it's not technically secret, but it's not really open source either because you really need kind of specialist skills to get at it. Those specialist skills are, you know, maybe can be called espionage in some cases, but in some cases maybe not because, you know, Private citizens and commercial organisations are doing it as well, if not better than government. So it's more of a blurry environment. I mean, I really hate to use the term grey zone, but I don't have a better one at the moment. But it's really the future information environment, I think, is one that is more grey. And what I'm optimistic about, what I'm hopeful for, is that that's one where 
the future intelligence officer is capable of operating much more freely. I mean, to extend that kind of military metaphor, uh, where, where, where they're operating more outside the wire. So at the moment, they're kind of inside these very fortified institutions where really a lot of the action is taking place outside the castle somewhere else. So I'd like to see intelligence officers able to get out there more. That means, you know, at the most basic level, having those skills, having those digital information skills, being able to work comfortably with, with latest technology, using AI, etc. But it also means having the kind of the right authorities and having the right skills to be able to exercise those authorities, to be able to make more of those kind of fine judgment calls that you need when you're out in that grey information space, making decisions which at the moment are made in a very kind of centralised, deliberative way, but in this sort of new environment have to be made faster, have to be made at a more delegated level. Um, and so that's what I, that, that, that's how I imagine my future optimal superintelligence officer operating, if that makes sense. And by superintelligence officer, they are still human, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough. <laughs> Look, when you think about where we're going to be in six years, it you know, like Ben, I think six years is not very far away. Um, although huge technology shifts could be coming. Um, right. I, you know, I agree this kind of bubble of intelligence activity or being inside the wire, as you put it. Um, I call it the bubble of skiffs or, you know, secure right. environments. It, it does two things in my mind. And firstly, Many intelligence, you know, organizations are not engaging every day in the same kind of tech, um, playing, getting involved with it. And they're not able to perhaps as effectively understand the level of overwhelm that everyone else is going through. Um, they are not as easily subjected to phone notifications, constant notifications and connectivity. Um, I can see you laughing, Olivia, but it is true. They have, uh, an ongoing access, if you like, to what Cal Newport calls deep work. And that is they're not interrupted as often. That is actually in this, in this global information environment, a profound, um, skill that I don't think they should lose as easily as it might suggest when we think about we want to move them into our, our everyday environment. We also want people who are moving slower and able to digest things without constant attention deficit. That's really interesting. I was laughing because I was re remembering back to when I worked in a skiff for three years and and colleagues would sometimes say that it was actually a relief to not get the constant notifications on their phones and other colleagues, you know, other 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 colleagues would be like running out to their little cubby hole to open up their phones every like five minutes. So it was quite a, it was quite a yeah, dichotomy of experience. Banking MFA, virtually impossible, but yeah. <laughs> Two-factor authentication is not working here. <laughs> um, I mean, jokes aside though, I do think it's, um, I do think it, it places them in a challenging situation because it is difficult to empathise with people who are constantly overloaded and bombarded. Um, and at the same time, it gives you a huge advantage in being able to think deeply. So what would I do about it? Um, in the recent uh, submission that uh, Tom Barrett and I made on behalf of the United States Study Centre to the Independent Intelligence Review, we kind of grouped this into four different ways. I think it's lots and lots of small steps along a journey to hopefully six years and beyond um, superintelligence offices and superintelligence communities. The first is addressing 
you know, what Ben is talking about here in terms of secrecy and declassification, there's a lot in this topic, but it is a really important one. And the role of secrecy and intelligence and its subsequent declassification of intelligence needs to be considered, I think, quite strategically. Um, the second is crucial, and that is building up our intelligence infrastructure, you know, digital and physical. I think building better uh, communication systems, better data repositories, uh, cloud, sovereign cloud capabilities, et cetera, is vital. And one I'd love to get your thoughts on at some point, Ben, is trust in intelligence agencies and particularly mm. this nexus between declassification and um, trust. And finally, partnerships and alliances, especially given the current strategic environment. Fusion and integration, obviously, are critical in that. Um, and I guess finally, in terms of that structure and, and um, process, would be really exploring and understanding the interplay between technology and power and national security. And I think that will be vital to a fully functioning um, intelligence community in 2030 that is capable of meeting the challenges that we are facing. Um, you know, many of the things that I just mentioned, the kind of four key topics we set out in our submission, you know, some of them we're performing brilliantly, but as you quoted the um, the independent uh, review, the Lestrange review, you know, it's creating a community that is excellent in individual rights but creating something that is more than the sum of its parts. So, you know, I want to be clear, I'm not... Um, you know, negating the incredible work that is being done, but I'm also saying we need to kind of reset this to create a a more forward-thinking, clearer, um, you know, solution, I guess, and, and that's going to come in those steps. And I really want people to think about threat assessment and how we can do it better. <laughs> the, the intel nerd in me will stay there forever. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, Mia. Any closing comments from you, Ben, on those uh, recommendations? No, I agree with all that. That's really excellent stuff from me. And we've also got a lot more to talk about as well. So I look forward to that. But if we can close with an encouragement to everyone who works in national security or intelligence or, in fact, in policy communities everywhere, um, do your own little bit to pop that skiff bubble because the data and digital challenges that confront us are so huge and uh, we would much rather see us leverage technology and the information environment we have rather than being overwhelmed by it. So everyone go pop that skiff bubble and in the meantime also have a really good read of Ben Scott's recent occasional paper for the NSC, which we'll provide in the show notes as well as Mia's recent articles and her technology and security podcast which I highly recommend. And I think that is a wrap for this episode of the National Security Podcast. Thank you, Mia, and thank you, Ben. Thanks very much, Lily. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Mia. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.